You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. Today and tonight, I'm extremely excited and grateful that Sheila O'Donnell has been able to join us all the way from Ireland. And I first met Sheila in 2014. We invited her and her partner, John Toomey, to be on our first international jury at the Venice Biennale. And I believe in 2012, you had participated in the Venice Biennale, Sheila. But welcome to the Think Brick podcast. And since then, we've kept in touch, albeit sporadically, but I have gone back and seen some of your beautiful brick buildings in person. And in particular, as we were just discussing the London School of Economics Centre there, and I, I I loved it. But welcome to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Thanks, Elizabeth. I'm delighted to be here. However, even if we are on opposite ends of the planet as we speak, it's morning here, and I think you're quite near the end of your day. Uh, so it's great to talk again. <laughs> we do normally start off by asking architects to share a little bit of their childhood with us, and we'd be curious to find out what yours was like. How was your childhood, where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in suburban Dublin in the 1950s. I am one of four children. I'm four children quite closely spaced in age. I have an older sister and two younger brothers. And we grew up in actually in a quite an interesting suburb, which I later realised, you know, looking back, that it was actually architecturally quite interesting. I mean, it was just a, a, a sort of um, normal 1950s housing development, but somehow whoever designed it seemed to have some kind of idea about how to group buildings together. And all of the houses were rough cast render, kind of pebble dash, painted in an ochre yellow with really nice brick details and steel windows. And there was just a nice feel in concrete roads. And we lived in a little cul-de-sac where the houses were grouped around at an angle. And in later years, if I occasionally, it's not a place I pass much, if I take a small detour to go down there, I think, oh, actually, this place has really quite a strong character that isn't typical of housing estates. I don't know, it's something about the material, the, the dark ochre colour that all the houses were little brick details, steel windows, low walls. It sort of, it makes up an environment. And actually looking back, it almost feels, it looks almost like sort of Scandinavian, you know, sort of Nordic classicism. And so I just wonder if there's someone in this house building company who had been to Scandinavia and had had an idea in their head about making something different because nearby most of the houses were either all brick or painted white and flat and it just it had an atmosphere it had a sense of place which you know as a child you, you don't know that's what you're experiencing so my my parents both were not from Dublin they both had come up to Dublin from different small towns and in a sense I always felt and I feel really now looking back that they were kind of making up an idea themselves of what should life be. My father uh, was an engineer. He was a scholarship boy. So he'd come from a relatively modest background where nobody else in his family had ever been to university, possibly may not even have finished secondary school. So he got the scholarship to come to Dublin and studied engineering. And then he, he, entered, he stayed in Dublin, but he went on to do a number of masters and things and eventually set up the first department of chemical engineering in university college dublin he was the first head of the school there and my mother uh, came from a small town a uh, big family 
she came to Dublin and was working a bit as an as a, she was studying acting, uh, kind of interested in reading and things. But then she became ill. She got tuberculosis and had to go home for about a year. But she was fine afterwards. But I suppose my mother, she was a, a stay at home mother. That's what she did from her young. So while she when she was young, she went to work as a teacher in England. But then she came back and neither of them, all my grandparents were dead before I was born. So that's the feeling I had that my parents were having to make it up. You know, they, they neither of them had siblings who had children. So, you know, when we were born, it's like, oh, yeah, here's here's a baby. What do I do with this? And I, you know, I felt that we had quite a strong sense of a kind of family culture and unit there and that other kids had things called grandparents and cousins and I thought that was a kind of optional extra and <laughs> was kind of anno- I was a bit annoyed with my parents that you know they had obviously chosen not to have these add-ons to our life but not realizing that actually all their parents had died that's why we didn't have them but I think that they like I know that my father had gone to the Christian brothers to very severe school in County Limerick where he was born so he was determined that it was going to be different so he, you know, when he was in UCD as a professor, he took a lot of, he talked to people in, you know, sociology and English and say, what's a good school? Where should I send my kids? What would be a place where they'd learn, you know, to be open and um, thinking humans? So I, it was interesting that they were both consciously um, trying to set up a different culture than the one in which they grew up. And so my mother, they always read a lot and there were, you know, the new novels, especially they read a lot of American literature because he had one of his um, studies had been, to, he was in MIT for a while um, oh, yeah. before he set up and my, my mother went out and joined him there. So they spent a period in America, which had a huge influence on their life because I they always talked about these people they met and they met in Boston. And, you know, then I discovered it was less than a year, but somehow it felt like it was a really important moment. So in a way that came into our home, like a lot of American novels, you know, they were always reading Soul Fellow and different Philip Roth and all the American novelists. So there, there was a sense that, yeah, it was a kind of interesting. And we always, there was always a lot of discussion at the table you know, as we got, as we became teenagers, a lot of discussion at the table. And while they always said later, oh, what happened? Where did we go wrong? How come all our kids turned out to reject religion and none of you got married in a church and you're all living with people? But I would say in a sense that they, they, you know, they set that up. They set up a culture where we, you know, we were expected to talk about things and it was kind of open. And so when I went to university and friends came to visit, they'd say, wow, your, your house is really different. You know, it feels very open and liberal. So, I mean, in a way, it was still Catholic Ireland. So, you know, we did go to Catholic schools and they were quite severe. My father was quite, maybe given his own background, he was quite keen that we would work hard in school. Mm-hmm. And that was a bit, he could be a bit severe about that. But I really liked reading and I really liked art in school, but I also quite like maths. And I'd never met an architect. So it was a sort of, I mean, as a child, you're, you have all these dreams. You don't really know what things are. I don't even know what happened. The moment when I thought, I used to say, maybe I'll be an artist, maybe I'll be a writer, maybe something to do with maths. And then this idea of architecture sort of settled in my mind. And I actually don't know now exactly where it came from mm-hmm. because. Maybe it was just a sense of amalgamating the, the sort of technical mathematical things I enjoyed with the more artistic things. And you weren't persuaded, you know, into engineering with your father being? No, my, he would have really liked if someone did engineering and nobody did. So I did consider it, I think. But his was chemical engineering, which was mm. really the, well, he wasn't a civil structural engineer. It was really the mathematical end and the, the science end of engineering. He, I think he would have liked that, but none of us did. Um, and 
I was probably the most likely candidate because I was the most interested in maths of my siblings. But no, we didn't. My my one of my sister's children, one of his grandchildren, studied engineering. I think he was he was so happy about that <laughs> that he he had finally got an engineer in the family. Yeah, family. Sheila, when you so you sort of said you didn't know when it came to you that you might go into architecture, but when you got to university, was it what you expected? That's a good question. No, I'd say it wasn't because I'd say it was much more open and more wide ranging than I expected. What it was, was absolutely wonderful. And I just remember coming into the School of Architecture and just almost not believing the the ethos, the atmosphere, the sense of the subject and the, the broadness and how we were being taught by very good people, I think. But just the broadness of architecture as something that's about making a whole environment. And I kind of felt I knew that now I was in the place I wanted to be in. And these were my people. Whereas in school, I I had a strange feeling that I never quite was completely at ease with the people around me in school. Just, you know, I had friends, but I didn't have absolute soulmates. And I felt that people didn't see the world the same way that I did or something. And then I walked into the studio in the School of Architecture and thought, Wow, you know, this is full of people who who are interested in similar things. And so, I mean, in some ways, sometimes I look back and think, well, wasn't that very lucky? Because I didn't quite know what to expect. And then when I got there, it wasn't, I mean, you asked, was I surprised or was it what I expected? Because I didn't know what to expect. I was probably nervous, but then I just thought it was absolutely fantastic. Did you take any inspiration, not knowing what to expect? Was it was there any architects that you'd predetermined in your mind that you liked, or did you find any when you got to university? Well, there definitely weren't any that were in my mind because I didn't know any. I mean, I had been a very quite introspective as a child, and quite you know, I would go off into a corner and quietly do something for a long time. I'd make a funny little drawing or do something. Probably I was the most shy or quiet of of my siblings and I was the one who would. So I think I was watching a lot. So then when I got to the School of Architecture, well, we did have the experience in our first year. We were taught by Shane de Black and we had just come back from working with Louis Kahn. And interestingly, we didn't I didn't know. None of us knew that what was happening was that we were being introduced to the ideas of Louis Kahn because Shane was embodying them in his own person. So he spoke to us about, about, well, bricks. I mean, bricks were on the on the agenda very early, you know, speak to the brick, ask the brick what it wants to be, was something we thought was said to us in our early in our first year. And and in a way, that's probably quite good as well, that that wasn't being taught to us as well. What Louis Kahn says is do this was more that that because it wasn't just about speaking to bricks, it was also thinking about light and space and mass. And but it was very much Louis Kahn's philosophy that was being conveyed to us. Now, there were other tutors who had a different interests, but somehow this was the one that sort of came directly into the heart, you know, the feeling that. This was the idea that to make good architecture, it was about spirit and about the spirituality of space, about the atmosphere of spaces, about the weight of materials. So that was very interesting, I think. So that was instead of learning through drawing and going to study buildings, it was just in the beginning talking about what might be the, the things that an architect should bring to the to the making of the environment around us in which we all live and work and stuff. So it wasn't so much the practical, it was more the, that, that sort of sense of, of atmosphere and intention. And then, of course, in parallel, we had other, we had an artist teaching us who used to bring us a very man called Patek. He was an architect, but then went to work more as an artist to make a lot of printmaking, a lot of drawings. So he brought us to Dublin Zoo to draw animals. And then we had to later, you know, if you drew the animals, then you would study the skeleton afterwards and think about how the skeleton of a 
giraffe works inside the drawing of a giraffe, but we all really enjoyed that going to the zoo and drawing the animals and then thinking about their structure or construction. So yeah, I would think of my, my first year as not so much being about being introduced to particular buildings by particular architects to study, but more thinking about what the different ingredients of developing the, the mind of an architect were. Uh, and we had we had another tutor who has very uh, Miesian and had worked with Mies in America. So you know, there was a kind of balance going on. But in a way, I think that sense of a kind of innocence that because you didn't know anything about it in advance, you just take each thing in face value as being an, that the architects weren't, as I say, presented to us as as a kind of we didn't go off and read books and look at all their key works. We just had people talking to us about their principles and what they believed in. Um, John may have told you the story about when we were in second year and Louis Kahn came to Dublin to do a lecture and we were you know, very excited. I think he was in London getting the Royal Gold Medal. So he came by Dublin and probably Shane de Blackham may have been involved in inviting him. And we managed to get tickets and sitting at the front, very excited. And then he started talking about, talk to the brick, ask it what wants to be. And we, we were going, oh, my God. And then briefly, I remember some of us saying, wow, he's really influenced by Shane. And then we thought, oh, no. It was the other way around, isn't it? Because, you know, we, we, thought, we thought, because we had heard all this and then we, we, you know, this first, we heard it from Shane and then yeah. we sort of absorbed it. And then this other man comes in and says the same stuff. And we think, and they said, oh, no, Shane learned this from Louis Kahn. Wow. But that was a wonderful experience to hear yeah. Louis Kahn speak when we were so young. I must um, say, sorry, one of the things of these series is hearing some of these university lecturers and the tasks they gave their students to do. <laughs> and it, it's just wide ranging. When I, went sure to, is, yeah. when I went to Western Australia, one of the lecturers, and I actually think he was from, you know, from Europe, had told the group to go 150 miles north or something into a desert and see how they went for five days. But, you know, as architects do, they they found a way to make it work for them. But I, lo- I love hearing the stories, what the yeah. lecturers have come up with. Well, the amazing thing about that was it was such an immersive experience. And, you know, mm. between the trying to really think about, we actually, I think we just did one building design project in first year, which was a house at the end of the year. And otherwise we were doing studies and drawings and actually one project we had to read poetry and then you had to write out or com- graphically represent the poem that you read in a way that somehow included idea about structure or structuring or rhythm or something but then our second year was completely different as were all the following years so there was a feeling about just getting out of the warm embrace of a of this fantastic culture and getting into a cold bath at the beginning of second year. In fact, the person leading the year, the lead tutor said, we're going to unlearn all that stuff you did last year. We don't, none of that's going to happen in here. All that sort of spiritual touchy feely stuff that's gone. So it was an interesting moment. And I think it was a really interesting moment in the kind of development of the relationships of the people in our, in our year group that I think some of us just thought, Oh no, we're not. And, and immediately said, I'm not on your side. I'm. Mm. I'm. I want to stay in the in the world of the whatever pejorative term he used. Mm. And others, I think, were were quite glad to move away. I mean, some people I think had found it a bit overwhelming, all that stuff in first year, and found this they'd rather be doing something more practical. And I right. came in here think I'm good at maths. I thought I came in here thinking I'd be able to use my maths and be you know doing kind of engineering stuff. So I think our year probably split into people who had you know, different ad- adherence to different principles. 
And in a funny way, it, and we were always a bit of a fractured group uh, for right through the five years then, because I think, you know, people were hanging on, some of us were hanging on to the stuff we had learned in first year yeah. and others were very happy to get away from it. Um, now, you did meet someone important at university that I only found out when I interviewed John. How did that come about at university? Yes, I did meet yeah. John in first year. We were in the same first year. Um, well, we were in the same studio. It was interesting because we were quite friendly in first year or we were part of the same group. Then we became very friendly, probably through our shared interest in the work. And also, no, I, we both read a lot. I mean, we did meet then at social events outside and realised that we both had really shared interests in poetry and T.S. Eliot and in other things. And so we fell into conversation easily. And in a way, maybe it was quite good. Then we we became, we became kind of, let's say, intellectual friends in mm. our first year and remained probably both might go to the other for a certain, you know, to check out things we were thinking about. Mm. But we didn't actually become a couple until we were in our final year. But we both had other relationships. But somehow there was probably always a feeling. And by the time we got to about third year, there was definitely... You know, a sense that we would often find ourselves going off together and doing things and just gravitating towards each other. And it was, it probably did come out of a sort of, it's not just an intellectual, it's an emotionally intellectual connection mm. about things, how we saw the world. I suppose that that's a kind of soulmates thing. And, you know, there's a funny thing when you're young and you're, you're going out with someone else and you think, I really like talking to this guy about stuff and about the world. And <laughs> yeah, so eventually we became a couple actually just as we were finishing our final year so we sort of went off together but it was very important because there were hard times when we were when we felt the people who were teaching in school really didn't approve of the way we were approaching our work and so so probably John and a few other people were we were all supports to each other we all went off and at the end of our third year we went to look at Le Corbusier's buildings in Paris and were completely you know unbelievably knocked out by how wonderful the Villa Savoie and the Villa La Roche and walked around looking at the outsides of other corp things you couldn't get into and then we came back in fourth year and we were set a project to design some kind of commercial building on the quays and in Dublin you know it was sort of in a Georgian shaped plot and the people who were teaching at that stage were actually encouraging the students to do somewhat kind of neo-Georgian, neo-Victorian historicist stuff. Mm-hmm. And about four or five of just in Corbusian buildings, you know, sort of signed these plaster buildings, you painted different pale colours with ramps and stairs. And the people who were teaching us thought that we were mocking them in some way. They actually thought we were not serious. And mm-hmm. I always thought afterwards, imagine teaching people and not being able to tell which students are absolutely, you know, we were just completely driven uh, yes. with excitement about this look, about this sense of modernist space and I, how they couldn't have seen that we were sincere. It was incredible. So we were very, it was very tough. We were, we were given a hard time. And I, I mean, it's funny, when I came to teach, I remember thinking, well, it's really important that you listen to students and observe them and think about, you know, just, just let them discuss the things that are in them that they have absorbed about architecture and in a way sometimes that's what you have to do you know you have to become Le Corbusier for a semester and then mm. you know later there was, we were the Russian constructivists at a later stage or you know British brutalists because <laughs> a way of absorbing and understanding the things that you admire trying to find out what you admire about them is something that you can test through design projects so I suppose through all those experiences I do remember in the library John and myself sitting near each other and looking you know, sharing the book about the Russian, the only book about Russian constructivists there or something. So it was, it, it's interesting, it was a kind of slow build thing, but I think we both 
looking back, felt that there was a kind of inevitability. But it's and like as if we were semi-intentionally kind of biding our time, you know, <laughs> before committing. But on the other hand, developing ways of thinking about the world. Because as well as architecture, of course, we were living in Catholic Ireland. So it was also the world and, you know, relationships between people, feminism, um, the role of women. So Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre were very much on the reading list. And yeah, that was another thing we shared. I mean, John was, is, and was then quite feminist in the sense of, you know, actively believing in rights and equality for men and women. Um, looking back, there were lots of really weird things. I mean, looking now at the right writings of Simone de Beauvoir and Jean-Paul Sartre and new things that have come out, they seem to have been, in a way, in some ways, quite awful people who intimidated and abused younger people in different ways. But at the time, a bit like the architecture, you know, her her sense in the second sex of, of even just defining women as the second sex and, and thinking as a woman, you always have to achieve much more than a man does to be seen to be equal. All of those things were really important and interesting. And the sense that they set out to live this life, you know, in hotels in Paris and not setting up a home. And that all seemed very exciting. So, I, I mean, yeah. that period of being a student is incredibly important, I think, in for, for us anyway, in forming not just who you think you are in architecture, but who you think you are in the world, which, of course, are completely interrelated as well. Mm. And um, what do you think complements you both? I mean, it's one thing to work together, but, I mean, to be together as well for so long. Yeah. What is it in the partnership that obviously works? How do you complement each other? Mm, that's difficult. Well, I think we... <laughs> I think we do very often think in exactly the same way about things. I mean, the number of times we're at an event or a lecture or watching a movie and one of us afterwards will make a comment about what they thought about something and the other will say, oh, God, I was just about to say exactly that same thing. I mean, it's kind of it's at this stage you go, oh, no, this is ridiculous. You know, we we had a client once who was a psychiatrist and she said she once said to us, well, the thing about you two, see, that's different from most other people is that you're one person. So... <laughs> <laughs> and she's a psychiatrist so she was sort of looking at us and analyzing us so there is a weird feeling of mm-hmm. and I don't know if, in terms of a work partnership if that's ideal I know lots of other partnerships that that thrive on difference yes you know, one brings yeah. one thing one thing so there have been times when we've been trying to get new work or things have been hard as they often are over the long career of an architect when we sort of both say I wish I had a business partner you know that the one who looked after the business yeah, it's a bit like the, you know, the thing people say, which we've also sometimes said in our early years together. Wouldn't it be great to have a wife? Yes, <laughs> you know, I, wish I, inverted, a, I wish I had. I wish I was commas. Well, obviously yes. nowadays lots of women have wives, but not in that way. But yep. inverted commas, you know, a person who whose role an old fashioned idea of a wife. But but on the other hand, you know that you're glad you don't because actually. Mm the way you then have to live your life, that you do have to work out how to share things. And I wonder, I think when we had our first child, that probably had a big impact and even further solidified the sense of sharing tasks and agreeing to be equal. I mean, that for me, that was really important. I was really, really nervous about having a child because I felt that I just would happen, that I would slip into being you know, the role of the mother and I would fall out of being able to work in the same way. So I, but John, who was very keen, said, no, no, I, if we do this, I'll share it. And and he really did and still does, even though our sons are in their 30s now. <laughs> I mean, it's it's we did share it. And I think that even having to balance that with work and mm. having to say, oh, gosh, it's nearly six o'clock. Someone's got to collect James and we'd, you know, we'd work it out between us and we'd respect for each other's 
current workload or mm. what's on your mind is just and also of course you have to be very organized when you have children because you've got to time 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 planning becomes incredibly important but i know that's not really what you asked i think in our case it is similar it's similarity i mm. mean there are some differences so like i i would be inclined to think about i really enjoy making kind of detailed plans of things little you know working out so at the moment we're doing some housing and i quite enjoy designing apartments thinking about you know ah, i've got i know i know what i can do i can get this bedroom in here and that'll work like that and john might sometimes be more broad brush or more you know he's thinking about a plan in a more overall compositional way so that's quite a good combination mm. so i come in when john's doing something i say oh but you've, you haven't done this and then no no you have to we have to get 14 more things in here and so there is a kind of sense of each keeping a an eye on on aspects you know bringing a different thing which in my case might be a kind of detailed which I think is the way I was as a child you know kind of detailed obsession with moving things around until they're all in the right place yeah and John's called more broad brush and one funny thing about working from home is that we're working at different ends of the house I'm down in the bottom floor and actually very nice little study space off our garden room while John's on the stair landing at the top of the house which is not not ideal but we in the in when we're in the office in the studio we work our two desks are beside each other so you can turn around and see each other all the time so that's been quite strange that we're working in different spaces um it's weird in the first months of the lockdown it was i, I think we both found it very difficult because we were involved in a lot of competitions and I suppose the lockdown was so stressful, like suddenly finding for months you'd wake up and say, is this really true? I'm not going into the office. I'm working here at home and I can't meet anybody. But we were doing competitions. It was stressful. And I don't know, being at different ends of the house was quite difficult. We were kind of shouting Mm. up and down the stairs all the time and just trying to. And and we were working. We sort of, again, because we did a number of competitions on, I was leading on the housing ones. John was leading another one. And it'll be interesting to see what happens when we get back in in the next few weeks so we are working in right you know beside each other you know a long desk but you know you can look over and see because at the moment where we have coffee in the morning now we sort of bring down what would you know he might bring down what he's working on or i'll bring down bring over what i'm working on and share them but and maybe so maybe it's made us more clearly divided and so i'm meeting the team on the housing projects by zoom and he's meeting people upstairs on another project by zoom and Gosh, I'm really going to enjoy that not being the way we communicate the, the yeah. same thing. It's so yeah, I would say I would say there are some disadvantages to the similarities between us. Mm. And yet John is more um, I would say sort of more confident and outgoing in relation to work, not relation, not necessarily in, in relation to other aspects of life, but in relation to work. He has a sort of stronger sense of confidence. And and even that, it's the same thing as me saying, mm, I don't know if we've quite got this right yet. We've got to keep pushing at this. But I know people, you know, would quite. So as our practice has expanded and now we we took on quite a few people during the lockdown, some of whom we have never physically met. And just recently, we because we now, which is very nice, we've got some new work in Dublin. Where it's been working in London and Budapest and other places, mm-hmm. so it's really nice having. But then it's also weird that we've got new work in Dublin. We can't really go out to. Well, we've been going on site visits recently, so I've been meeting new people. You know, say, "Oh yeah, you're Henry. I've been talking to you for four months by Zoom. Here you are. Hooray!" <laughs> so we have because we have more people now. We also have uh, three directors as well as the two of us, and that has really helped because, in a sense, that they take on different roles also. 
And some of the stuff, so I suppose, like in the early days, I even used to do the books, you know, in the very early days, right, in an old-fashioned book, writing down all the money. And obviously we stopped doing that a long time ago. But, you know, people look after aspects of management of the practice, which they're better at than we are. Mm. So that's that's quite good. When I was researching a little bit more about you, Sheila, your watercolour drawings have been exhibited in a lot of different places. Yeah. I just wonder whether you could talk about sort of that influence of art. You, you touched on yeah. it a little bit before. Yeah, I mean, it's been really interesting, I think, in terms of, of how I use watercolours in work. I, I can't remember when. It might be maybe about 20 years ago, a friend of mine who's an artist gave me a present of a box of watercolours. And I was a bit, I was kind of, oh, that's great. Because I, I had up to then been doing more like pastel drawings and sketches and things. And I don't know if she hadn't given me that present if I would have started working in watercolours. So I think originally I, I was drawing mountains. And actually, because it's about 20 years since we've got a house in the west of Ireland, and I found the mountains down there really engaging. I just found they pull me in to think. And I, they're amazing because the weather is so strangely changeable that you know, the mountains are changing all the time. So I think I started by painting mountains and I realised I was trying to you know, not to describe them in detail, but to put down on paper something about their shape or their form or how the light worked on them or how two mountains in front of beside each other worked in, in terms of light and dark or shadow. So then I, when we were doing competitions, I started thinking, well, I could use this for the development of work. And say in one house, one of the first times I used watercolour was doing a house outside Dublin to a very rock outcrops on the site. And so I was making watercolours of the rocks. And then I was kind of found myself almost translating the rock formations into something that became a building. But it started with the drawing of the site and then it kind of became, it, it emerged out of that. And I think anyway, that's something we talk about a lot about wanting our work to feel like it. it's almost like you go to a site and you try to understand what building almost is already there, what building that site can hold. So you're, you're kind of pulling the building out of the sense of the spirit of the site, what it mm. wants to have there. So then I, I realized then that it's a really good medium for thinking about things strategically without having to go into detail. Mm. And also just for thinking about how and probably almost goes back to the sort of things that were talked to talked about to us when we were in first year about just what is the sort of the spirit of something? What is its essential atmosphere? What's the first thing you are aware of in terms of um, how something makes you feel? Because I think how things make you feel is probably a really important part of an architect's work so and actually it's funny I sometimes think that because you know watercolor is pigment dissolving in water and because we have done a lot of brick buildings I've spent a lot of time kind of trying to mix colors of brick and thinking about you know burnt sienna and other colors and that in a way it's almost like you crumbled up a brick and put water in it and then spread it on the page that the paint is a physical thing you know that sits on the paper and so it's almost like a step into thinking about a building. And I think a thing that I am very aware of in brick is that, you know, you start off with the brick as an individual object and there's hundreds and thousands of bricks stacked up. And then as they get built into a wall or a roof or whatever we're using them, it, they start to homogenize in the brick and it becomes a singular thing. And so in a way, I felt the painting was a good way of starting with the homogenous singular thing and then kind of going back to how it's made. So I've increasingly used the watercolours. I also find that doing the mountains, which is what I really like doing uh, in the west of Ireland, is also a way of, it, I feel it is part of my work as an architect. It's trying mm -hmm. to think about and understand about the mass and form of things. 
And then when we couldn't leave the city in the lockdown and couldn't go to the West, and I thought, oh, so I stopped painting for a while because I've always found I didn't like painting the foreground in those paintings. I didn't like putting in all the kind of grass and trees in front. Okay. They're too, they're too, de- too finicky, too detail-y. And, but then I'm looking out the window now. If I look out the window where I am, there's five amazing twisted willow trees just outside, which we planted 25 years ago. And then there's layers of other things behind. So I started painting the trees in the garden in lockdown. Actually, in the beginning of lockdown, we I had COVID and not very badly, but I was just recovering and feeling a bit kind of tired and shaky. So I just started, it was spring and it was beautiful weather, painting the acer tree as it leaves just started to come out. And just a sense that the colour and the way the light came through them, I thought that's like a stained glass window. You know, it's the way the way light comes through glass. So then I just... Across the, the lockdown, I painted the same acer tree at all, the, you know, in the early spring, in the summer, in the autumn, in the winter. And then other, you know, there's a fig tree just outside the window, too. And then I was having a race to, I wanted, it was lovely, it was bare, no leaves were on it. And then I could see they were starting to come and I'm really slow. So I was, you know, saying, I have to cut this before those leaves come out. Because the light on the trunks and the way that they twist. And so actually I found that it was, that's a good aspect of the lockdown for me. It's led me to think about to look at different kind of forms. And again, you know, I'm looking at the the five trees in the garden and they're in a kind of a rough circle. And just now there's an aluminium chair between them, but sometimes there might be a wheelbarrow or a watering can. And just the way a thing sits in space between these trees and the space that they make, I've just found that kind of, I suppose it's a little bit like a kind of meditation and and Mm -hmm. it's emptying your mind of, especially since I am inclined to obsess a bit about what's the brief and have we got all the rooms in, that to be able to then look at something that's just about the shape and the form and the space it's making and even how one material contrasts with another in a space. So, yeah, I think it's and even when, when I'm what I'm doing is not a painting of a building. I think it is part of the way my mind works as an architect. Yeah, and maybe even that business about having to to put aside detail until you have a sense of the general, because my tendency is the opposite. And I think it's probably always been like that. I'm, mm. I'm, and that's, I think, why I don't paint the foregrounds, because if I'm doing mountains, I think I would just get totally distracted into doing something really detailed in the foreground. What I'm trying to do is actually the opposite, to to add, not abstract, but to, you know, in a sense, to make more abstract something and to think about its its singularity as an object in the world and space. It's co- totally, I mean, I'm very fast doing the mountains because you have to be because you're looking at a mountain and you look down to mix a color and you look up again and it's in a completely different color than it was the last time or it's disappeared behind a cloud. <laughs> so if you want to, if there's a moment when there's an amazing purple and the mountain is going over to pink, you've got to just do that really quickly because it won't be there the next minute. Whereas I know the tree, that's why I had an easel here behind me and I was doing this big tree for weeks. But, you know, I knew it would be there the next day. <laughs> just keep, you know, except that you the just had to go against the seasons. And, yeah. <laughs> but then, you know, later you could pick the figs and paint them. And there's lots of, you know, they were nice. And that's been interesting, I think, to, to have to shift the focus. Mm. And I don't know what it's going to be like when we're back with much more, you know, casual and overlapping conversations with the rest of the team. Instead of saying, OK, we'll do a Zoom at half 11 and we'll talk about that. To actually just walk up to someone's desk and talk mm. about, no, I don't mean that. I mean, with that there, and I think it's going to be very liberating. But maybe it's good to think we might have learned something from the experience of working this way that we can bring into the other way of working. Mm. Yeah. I don't know. I would say I, we will probably try to not be in the office full time for the five days a week. We mm. might try to spend some time here. We're 
we're hoping to build a studio at the end of our garden, but we're waiting for planning permission to come through. But if that happens, we could imagine working there a few days a week, maybe even people from the office coming at yes. times and working with us. So we might have a, there might be a more complex set of ways of working, of mm. relationships mm. as we move on. If we were to just touch on a few of your projects, you don't do everything in brick, but you have no. been a big lover of brick. And what struck me when I not only visited some of them, but when I look at them, there's a lot of constraint around the place or the space. And I just wondered when you approach those projects, is the material really key in deciding how you're going to approach that space? I think it probably is, or it often is, let's say, certainly in both the London School of Economics and the Lyric Theatre, which were done relatively close together. In both of those cases, we went to visit the site. They're both competitions. And visiting the site, in each case, we just felt instinctively that it had to be a brick building. And in the case of the LSE building, the site was very constrained. Actually, they're both triangular sites. And that mm. seems to be, you know, that seems to be our lot in life. <laughs> We've got a new project now for a cultural quarter outside Dublin on a triangular site. And, you know, it's just with triangular sites, they just come our way. Anyway, the, the LSE site was very, not just triangular, but very constrained, very mm. other buildings quite close. And just a, it's a really interesting place where the kind of medieval street pattern of London meets a an early 20th century rationalization that came through when Kingsway was put in. So there's a very straight line on one side and the rest is kind of knotted. But we just felt it's a really bricky, it's a really bricky part of London and that somehow this building needed to be, to have a kind of weight, a kind of heft, not necessarily seriousness because it's a student centre and probably in parallel with knowing we wanted to be brick, that part of that was trying to think, what is a student centre? It wasn't really a building type that we had thought about before and then we thought well it's like a sort of cross between a big warehouse where people can come in and do what they like which made us think brick and timber and a kind of gentleman's club but for students and it's a sort of or a you know a, maybe a constructivist um social condenser club or something so it's a place of overlap but somehow the brick the character of brick both externally in in that part of the city but also maybe internally in terms of trying to find a language for the building that would people would feel comfortable in and that different kinds of people, you know, outward looking people and quiet, nervous students who had just come to the city could, could somehow find it easy to be in. We felt that that character that Brick gives is really interesting. And it's something, you know, we've often talked to clients about, say, in the Lyric Theatre and in another theatre we're doing now in London for Sadler's Wells Dance, which is also Brick, Clients in theatre buildings often are really interested in found space. And they say, you know, I actually prefer theatres that are in found space. Like most of my favourite spaces, they might say, are in a, an old warehouse or a building that was something else and then becomes a theatre. And we're trying to think, what is it about that? Why, why is that the case? And one of the things we felt that they often, those kind of spaces often are warehouses or old industrial buildings. And frankly, they're often brick. And mm. I think it's something about the, the scale and the thing we're talking about about bricks giving a kind of human scale and yet having a kind of massive almost industrial character so it's not it's not precious and it's not pretentious and I think a lot of clients for those kind of buildings are worried that an architect will come in with an over architectural idea and overly sort of elaborate or 
fancy, you might say. So they're they're saying, well, I really like the atmosphere that you know theatre ha- that happens in these found spaces have, and and it's not just in. And we have done some projects in old buildings. Our first public project, the Irish Film Centre, was in an amazing cluster of historic brick buildings. And we could see, and we carved out some new spaces and roofed over some existing spaces to turning an outside space into an inside space. But people immediately responded with affection and ownership to that. And that, and just watching how that was and how that worked, we developed a sense that part of it is a kind of material quality. And it's it's the it's the weight of the material quality, the even the fact of brick sometimes being having imperfections or not imperfections, but inconsistencies in the material that somehow that seems to make people feel at ease and relaxed as opposed to a stark white smooth wall so and particularly for those cultural uses that we we often are working in so it's just it's a funny one isn't it so on the outside in the LSE it's about relating to the streets and also we had all these really interestingly complicated rules about building on that site which was about pulling back from other buildings rights to life which is why we ended up sloping the walls and and shaping the building but the brick was is really good because the parts are so small at being able to be kind of sculpted and formed into a shape and we really enjoyed that sense of using that aspect of brick because obviously, for all kinds of reasons, including the, the the kind of bricks that are made now, we weren't using the brick structurally. The brick is a skin, but so it's in a way it's a, it's a coat that the building mm. is wearing. It's but sometimes it's wearing it inside as well. So underneath the coat, there's another dress in brick. So we enjoyed the sense of working with the, what you can do with something of that scale, and then how it sort of instantly settles into the place it's in. So you can be quite experimental with the form. Mm-hmm. And it's not because I think that working in historic contexts or working in existing buildings, I think it's really important that the new thing doesn't make the old things around it look shabby or feel ridiculous or feel out of place. So I think it's a kind of responsibility that a building has to add to the, the context in which it's placed in a positive way, maybe to lift it or improve it, but not to have, be in such contrast that somehow the, the two can't sit happily together, you know, that they're that one makes the other look silly or look out of place. I think that's that's been something also we've been really conscious of in our work is when we're building in a historic context, not just, I mean, there are obviously, there is another school of thought that you put down a beautiful glass box beside an old crumbling building and there's an interesting conversation, but I think we just haven't been interested by that way of looking at it because I think the sense of moving from outside to inside and that buildings that we've designed, especially if they are a social function like the student centre or like a theatre, that you want to make, to have people flow easily from outside to in. So a sort of sealed, a sort of pure glass box is actually quite hard to get through because it's it's made the reflective surface is like the outside is one thing and the inside is another. Whereas I think we prefer to think of the building folding into itself and that you almost that they're in between spaces like the covered canopy and the LSE or that that you find yourself, like when you're under the canopy, you're technically outside, but you're in the building. That's really important it. to us. Mm, just just geometrically and and it, it was just a building that had all of these sort of different aspects to it and, and everyone did kind of meld in together and you could tell that everyone was at different stages, but looking yeah. at it as that real sort of thoroughfare, but also a place where they could be. Yeah. So, I mean, that's been really, it's it's very much on our minds, I think. And we've been lucky to have a lot of projects to do where 
actually that's a requirement that people feel the people can come in and feel comfortable in the first space in the building before they commit to, like say example with the theatre we're doing now for Sadler's Wells in the east of London. It's in the East End where there's a lot of different kinds of communities of different ethnic backgrounds, many of whom would not be used to going to the theatre or to museums and all of these new buildings are being built there. So their clients, the Sadler's Wells people, really want this building to feel like a community building and this community dance in the foyer and this hip hop classes for kids. But that sense of you know finding yourself inside for one reason and then realizing, oh, it's okay, people like you do go into buildings like this. And actually, you know, you could even buy a ticket and go into the main theater and see something. At the building, having that inviting, easy to enter character is, I just find it an endlessly fascinating mm. conversation. And we started with the Irish Film Center, trying to make sure people would just easily walk in. And the client there was very interested in that too, about the sort of almost like the psychology of how to get people in. And it's kind of going on and on through our work. How do you make what I sometimes call kind of contingent spaces, like spaces almost in between inside and outside, spaces you can go into before you make a commitment that you're actually going to go right in there? Because I think entering a building for lots of people is pretty intimidating. And especially if it's something like a cultural building of a type they haven't been in before. And I would say that, so we often use brick outside and brick inside. So in Sadler's Wells Theatre, it's, it's we're using brick and very big clay tiles made of the same clay as the brick. So it's kind of brick and clay hanging up on the roofs. But then when you come into the building in the foyer, the brick wall kind of weaves its way in above the bars and stuff, the same brick. So it is almost like you're kind of finding your way into a space which feels a bit like the outside, but obviously you're a step further towards being inside. And I mean, I'm sure it works with other materials, it just happens we've been doing it with brick in a number of, of buildings because of the kind of warmth of the brick and just because I suppose we just really like brick. Now, obviously, we're all at the moment facing the need for our buildings not to um, be too carbon heavy. And so mm. I'm really interested in I would love to think that there's going to be a way into the future that 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 the manufacture of bricks and indeed of concrete will evolve and develop in such a way that it involves less use of extreme heat in the burning and mm. fossil fuels in the making of bricks. And I know people are already experimenting with bricks made out of different materials and different ways of making bricks, but it's obviously a responsibility we, we have to take on. And But but I like to, I also believe that you have to balance a lot of factors when you're thinking about those aspects of carbon and one is the length of life of a building and buildings made of brick and mm. other heavy strong materials will last a very long time and mm. so so you have to take into consideration and also then the running costs and sometimes you can design a building that has yeah. that yeah. is very well insulated and doesn't cost much to heat and ventilate so it's really complex and there is a quite a lot of sort of um, virtue signaling going on in the architectural profession at the moment I'll never use concrete and brick, but then they might be doing something that only lasts 25 years and then you've got to build something else. And I, I think we need to have the conversation in a really grown up way that, um, mm. that balances everything. But and it is, it, and it's in a way it feels, it's, I suppose it shouldn't feel sudden, but it does kind of feel sudden that suddenly we're, because we are at the brink of something that's very extreme mm. about the crisis of the climate. So yeah, we're, we're, we're still trying to adjust and understand how we work with materials as we as we move forward yeah i think carbon neutral i know for architects in australia it's a, it's a really obviously important issue and i guess we use that 
all of those things where, for example, everything was windows for a long time and then to yeah. double glaze them and put in the heating and the cooling, yeah. you know, then all of these yeah. operating costs were offset by that. And so I think to me, I see a trend where the conversation's getting a little bit more sensible rather than just kind of being extreme yeah. one way or the other because there's, you know, advantages to both. But we've certainly noticed here and we're trying our best in Australia to, to pioneer these new ways of doing things mm-hmm. and obviously keeping the environment at the forefront of what we do. But we do sort of say there are zero carbon building materials, but then if you're putting in air conditioning and using electricity and everything else... Yeah. Um, it's a little bit silly but no it's an important issue and it's it's very important to Australian architects and and particularly well you have such extreme climate I mean compared to us where our climate is is very temperate you Mm. certainly have much more um, challenge in a way but uh, but it's not about local climates is it it's about the whole planet (laughs) yes it is so it's uh, Sheila I this has just been fascinating. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I've, I have learned so much. I'm always grateful for what I hear from architects and in particular your perspective on things. And you've articulated things so beautifully for me. Thank and you. It's, it's been lovely to be able to sit down. I don't think we even got to do this in Venice, even though we had all that time. I think yeah, we're yeah. Busy, busy judging. But before we go, we'll just head into these rapid fire questions. Okay. Reading the news, a newspaper or on online newspaper handwriting or typing handwriting for sketching ideas and concepts would you use a pencil pen or an e-pen a pencil is there a specific pencil there yes a clutch pencil Karen dash clutch metal clutch pencil probably when sketching a thick the two millimeter one there's there's a one and a half millimeter I use for the hard line okay which I suppose you do less hard line but yeah two millimeter Karen Dash soft clutch pencil for sketching ideas. Love it. Do you like to read books or listen to audio books? Read books. Both really, but read books. What's important to you, style or substance? Substance. Coffee or tea? Green tea. TV shows or movies? Movies. Antique or brand new, modern? Antique, modern. (laughs) (laughs) Call or text? Call. Travel back in time or into the future? Into the future. Exterior or interior? Interior. Video games or board games? Board games. Form or function? Both. And last Sorry. question, in with relation to design, complex or simple? Complex and simple. <laughs> it's all right. You Simply can- complex. Simply complex. complex. You know what? I think that's exactly what John said. That's the (laughs) only two answers you've had the same. Really? (laughs) Yeah. So, oh, thank you so much. No, it was, it was, that was really fascinating. And and it's really interesting to hear how everyone's dealing with COVID and and what, how everyone's going to come out of it, I think. I know, isn't it very, Mm. well, hopefully something good might happen. Mm. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please follow, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for new ways to think brick. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.